Hello, and welcome to Just Plain Wrong, the podcast where three Mennonite librarians discuss Amish fiction and depictions of Amish, Mennonites, and other plain groups in pop culture. I'm Tilly Yoder, and today Abby, Aaron, and I will be talking about the book Minding the Amish Baby by Carrie Light. But before we dive into that particular work, I have a question for the two of you, and that is, do you like haystacks, and how do you prefer to eat them? Well... I can start by saying I associate haystacks primarily with fundraisers and funerals and with that cheese that you pour out with a ladle onto the top. And I guess they're okay, but I prefer (laughs) many other forms of Mennonite cuisine and potlucks. Um, And (laughs) I asked, I asked my husband uh, his feelings on haystacks and he immediately responded, there's always too many spoons. So like you're walking through this line. And for those, if you've never heard of a haystack, it's like basically a pile of whatever you find in the house starts with rice or chips or crackers. And you just put whatever on it, like sunflower seeds and vegetables. And and he's right. There's usually just a thousand bowls with a thousand spoons. So I guess meh is my feeling on haystacks. I do think it's kind of funny that you included the line and lots of vegetables, because I will say in my years of haystack consumption, There are many things that go on haystacks, including pineapple or bacon or very odd things. Vegetables is not something you tend to see a lot of, unless it's some kind of very sad out-of-season tomato. Yeah, or like a Um, single green pepper for like a group of 40 people. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I I must confess, I, I have a soft spot for haystacks. But honestly, you know, there I could talk about the variations. I could talk about the, you know the simplicity of it to a certain extent, like it's very pantry friendly, but in reality, I like it because of the orange cheese. I just like the gloop of orange cheese on top. I know it's wrong. I know it goes against (laughs) God and nature and everything that has anything to do with a taste bud, but I love it. I have, I have low brow taste in food and haystacks are my jam. I, I was a late comer to haystacks. I didn't experience them or know what they were until college. And I enjoy them when they're more like a taco salad, which is very easy for a haystack to become. So I've, I've gone a little bolder. I've tried the pineapple and sunflower seeds and other toppings. I, I don't hold with any of the nonsense that puts salad dressing on them, though. It's either salsa or cheese or salsa and cheese, but never salad dressing for me. I think that's too far. You're from the Midwest. Ranch goes on everything, Tilly. Ranch goes on almost everything. (laughs) Um, Haystacks are too much like like a deconstructed casserole. They don't need the Mm -hmm. ranch. Wait, you don't put ranch on casseroles, Tilly? (laughs) (laughs) I will say until today, uh, I did a little Twitter poll on haystacks. I did not realize they were such a like cultural and regional thing. I thought they were maybe Midwestern generally, but no, like I don't have that many Twitter followers, but only about 30% of them had ever heard of a haystack supper. And I, my, my mind is still blown at this fact. It was interesting to me that when you put your Twitter poll out and you mentioned that the group's 
that are known for making haystacks are Amish, Mennonites, Seventh-day Adventists, and Mormons, which is a pretty interesting cross-section of uh, humanity there. I don't know if it's just the idea of having large families. So whenever you have a meal that pulls primarily from a pantry, you know, very shelf stable ingredients, uh, good for large groups, you know, everyone assembles their own dish and makes what they want. So you don't have to cater to picky eaters or people with food intolerances. If that's the common denominator there, or if it's something deeper and stranger. It's the outward depiction of the fact that all of those are kind of other religions. Mm-hmm. They don't really fit neatly into the Catholic, Protestant kind of general divisions. They're all kind of other. And I think that's the 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 theologians have been missing out for years. It's secretly haystacks that pull together all of those various <laughs> beliefs. They're built on an accumulation of slightly soggy saltines. Right. I'll also say, I don't know about the Seventh-day Adventists, but Mormons and Mennonites are like the two groups known for their jello salads. So we also have that in common. Uh, and I'm sure that will come up many times in future episodes. <laughs> oh. Yes, we have. Well, let's go ahead and move on to our book, Minding the Amish Baby. Got to make sure that you know that that baby is Amish. Carrie Light is the author of 11 Amish romances all through Harlequin, the inspirational romance arm, the uh, more religiously bent arm of Harlequin. She's written two series, so this is not her first rodeo. And she, you know, manages to pack in a lot of things typical of Amish life in like 175 pages. But before we start in on the discussion questions, I think we should do a recap. Okay, so Tessa is younger Amish daughter. She only has one sister, Katie, who is older. She is now living by herself because Katie has gotten married. And she is liking the independence, but her mom and her dad are like, yeah, you should maybe come back to your hometown and, and you know live with us until you get married. This independence thing is just makes us stressed out but you know tessa's kind of has the hots for the next door neighbor and next door neighbor turner is a bit of a grouch but he's a decent landlord so one day tessa wakes up in the evening or in the middle of the night and there's a baby on her doorstep and it's got a letter and turns out it was meant to be dropped off at turner's house so she goes over and is like yo why is there a baby on my doorstep? Turner reads the letter and they put two and two together and he says, this is my sister's baby. And she's been on Rumspringa and we've lost touch. I haven't heard from her. I'm afraid of what's happened. We have to take care of this baby, but we can't let anyone know about it because it will harm my sister's reputation and it will harm our reputations. We need to find my sister and we need to get her to come back. So, They start taking care of the baby, and they dodge all sorts of close calls where people almost see the baby in various houses as Tessa takes the baby to her house during the day while Turner is off running his woodshop. And they start staking out bus stops and other places where they know that Turner's sister, Jocelyn, has been seen. And then eventually things wrap up. The sister is found. Their love is expressed. 
marriage happens, everybody's happy, yay. So question one, at least for me, I thought that independence was a big theme throughout the book, that it was kind of unusual for Tessa to be living on her own as an Amish woman, and that there's a foil to Tessa through Jacqueline, who is Turner's younger sister, who is undergoing Rumspringa. And it's implied that Tessa and Turner had their own Rumspringas, and then they, they decided to join the church. They formalized their commitment to be part of the Amish community. But the book never really talks about what Rumspringa is. So I thought we should talk about that. Let's start with you, Abby, if you want to explain what you know of Rumspringa. Well, I definitely feel like this is not an area that I am an expert on, but I will say I think Rumspringa probably often gets kind of glommed onto as this time where, you know, um, late teens, early 20s, like early 20s, often teenagers, I think, Amish youth go just wild with partying and drugs and all sorts of misbehavior that almost always gets them into big trouble. But in reality, I think it's primarily this idea of taking a step away and experimenting with trying living in the world a little bit more um, before one joins the church. I would be really fascinated and I do not know what the statistics are in terms of how many youth actually leave during a rumspringer and how many stay in the church. I would guess the conversion rate is pretty high for staying in the church just because the Amish have one of the higher rates of children born into Amish families staying in the Amish faith. But I would be curious to find out what actual numbers would be. So would I. We should look that up. Erin, anything you want to say about Rumspringa? Yeah, just a couple things to add to that. Um, so yeah, like Abby said, it, it's this period of like rebellion, but it's really about like Amish, Mennonites, uh, most Anabaptist groups like believe strongly in like choice. So babies aren't baptized. It's supposed to be a choice you make as an adult. Um, and so for Amish, part of that is this like time to run free and be be away from the rules. Like Abby also mentioned, that's tended to be depicted in the media as this like extreme thing. And certainly for some Amish it is, but for most it's like, it's not. They maybe wear jeans once and <laughs> smoke a cigarette. And like where I grew up in Iowa, the Amish don't actually do rumspringa at all. They, I don't know what it means to run wild in Iowa, but it, they didn't, they definitely didn't have this period where they were supposed to be free and wild. So yeah, those would be the, the things I would add to what Abby said. Yeah, those both track with my understanding of it. I was when I was first learning about what it is, I was told it was essentially just a different term for adolescence, where uh, the rules are still sort of there, but the penalties are relaxed. So if it's a time where you're forgiven for venturing outside of your community, trying some new things, so that when you make a choice to join the church formally to be baptized Amish you can say that you're making a more informed choice. So, yeah, I I personally, I mostly associate it with uh, my college years going to Steak and Shake late at night and seeing lots and lots of Amish kids, teenagers, you know, wearing jeans or, um, you know, small doilies instead of head coverings, uh, you know, having fun out on the town, (laughs) Steak and Shake at midnight. 
Uh, or the, is... the, the Elkhart County 4-H fair. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're always smoking under the, the bleachers. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, coming from from Iowa, where you just really had limited interaction with the the Amish, even though it was a fairly large Amish population. But yeah, being in the Goshen area, you you actually see the rum sprung in action a lot, a lot mm-hmm. more. It's generally quite a bit more tame than it's portrayed to be. Yeah. All right. Well, to move on, I I thought that as a whole, this book was pretty accurate. There was no dancing. <laughs> it was pretty well representative and the things that I thought were came off a little awkward tended to be more stylistic so things like word choice what what words made it into German and what words stayed English I thought the names were a little unusual but that's that's really about it what what did you two think about accuracy oh, Aaron why don't you start <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I agree. The names, the names really jumped out as as bad. Uh, Turner, Tessa, Mason. Um, yeah, were very unclassic Amish names. But I also agree that I felt like she did pretty well in the details. Like she references phone shanties, and I think at one point there's the little tidbit dropped that businesses can have phones, but Turner's business he chose not to. And. Her depiction of like Amish youth, I thought was pretty accurate, like having the the Sunday evening get togethers and potlucks. One thing in terms of not being accurate, and I actually am not sure, but at one point early on the book, I think Tessa refers to having her share of suitors in the past. And I found that interesting because it's not my understanding that Amish really date, certainly not all of them marry the first person they court, but the way that they said she, quote, had her share of suitors, um, I wasn't sure how accurate that would be. All right. How about you, Abby? Yeah, I would um, also agree. I think mostly, I felt like this was significantly more accurate than other books that we have read or probably will read in the future. So one one little couple notes that I thought were, I am not a particular... um, well-known in horses, but I was impressed. I think at one point uh, Turner gets very upset with someone who inadvertently parks his buggy and blocks the shared lane that he and Tessa share. Um, He's more upset because they're some of Tessa's friends are having like a get together at Tessa's house and he's very jealous, but doesn't really know how to verbalize it. So when he gets upset that the horse and this buggy is tied to a low fence post, which is going to apparently be quite bad for the horse's neck because they are supposed to be like held up. So now that could be completely made up and someone who actually knows horses will be like, Oh no, that's total BS. But I was just kind of impressed with that random detail in there of of what felt like, Oh, someone who someone has actually been around Amish or at least knows something about horses has. Yeah. I I think it's trickier to get horses right than, um, then my my instinct suggests it would be because they are really complicated creatures, even though we think think of them as simple just because they're not cars. I thought that was interesting too. There's the mechanics of daily life, like man, someone's buggy is parked or or how often in this book um, miscommunication happened because of timing. So they would plan things a week in advance, and then when changes happened, they wouldn't be able to notify people because they don't have cell phones. <laughs> so yes. you have to stick to your schedule. And then when schedules are broken or unexpected things happen, it can cause actual problems. 
in a way that I don't think they do for people living in the modern world. So I thought that was a, a, a good a good thing to portray, the frustrations caused by having to to plan your life based on when you can get to the grocery store and when you can walk home in bad weather and um, all of those things. So we, we talked about this a little bit at the start of this episode about independence and how independence, particularly for Amish women, is not seen as a virtue or it's, it's seen as something with an expiry date. So our main character, Tessa, is very vocal about enjoying her independence. She likes having a house to herself. She likes working in a shop. She likes not having to live with her parents. She wants to get married and have kids, but not right now. But then the book sort of makes a quick detour and says, oh, but, you know, if you do find romance, you should be open to it and you should be ready to be a wife and mother and give up your job and have babies pretty much as soon as you get married. And I found that frustrating. I thought if I were in her position, I would be not ready. That even if I was open to romance, that a long engagement would do the trick for me. <laughs> that that I wouldn't want to be shoehorned into that life. That's coming from a very modern standpoint. But it was frustrating anyhow. Uh, did you struggle with that? What What in this book made you feel frustrated? And then conversely, was there anything that made you feel satisfied? Erin, why don't you start? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said. Uh, it was frustrating how it switched on a dime because at first, like the first chapters of the book, like she was depicted as like saying things like, yeah, I'm really happy being single. I'm happy where my life is at. I like my job. And it's like, oh, this is quite like liberated for, for a young Amish woman. But at the same time, even through that, she was like, she had parental pressures and family, like her sister was pressuring her to court people and like all these implications that she needed to settle down as soon as possible. And she was only 21. Like this wasn't like mm -hmm. she was, you know, approaching <laughs> any sort of elderly age. Um, yeah. So, so that kind of bothered me that this, okay, so she, she can only have these feelings of independence because she's still like, yeah, 21. And then as soon as she meets Turner, she's, and this baby shows up on her doorstep, um, like all of a sudden, boom, I'm, I'm ready to, to have a baby. Yeah. So I guess it's that typical tension. I don't think Amish novels are necessarily exclusive in, in dealing with this badly. <laughs> I feel like this is a common problem in media where a woman says, oh, I'm not ready to have kids. And then the minute she's married, she changes her mind. Um, yeah, that, that seems pretty familiar in, in all sorts of genres. I will say with the, the external pressure from her community to get married, I noticed a different treatment than in the pretend Amish bride, his pretend Amish bride, which used the words spinster and helpmeet and really put moral value on being single or being married. And I think this book did a much better job of portraying the choice to be single and the choice to be married as something that happens in its own time. There's definitely pressure, but it 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 didn't seem like it was the same level of of pressure. 
Well, she was only 21 compared to what was the, <laughs> I think she was, she was 27 or something. Oh yeah. I think you're right. 23 old lady in the Amish bride book. One of the things that I definitely did notice with this book was I felt like there was a lot of telling and very little showing um, in, especially as we were getting to know the characters. I enjoyed the fact that what they were telling us was that Tessa had found independence and was enjoying it, but it was, it was still very much like Tessa is single and happy about it as opposed to fully showing Tessa and Turner as characters that you could get to know. Um, I think this was especially notable with Turner who felt like all he was, was a backstory about a missing sister and there was just nothing else there. Like that was just kind of the only thing that really gave his character shape. And, and, and so I found that kind of frustrating because it was just like, how are we supposed to get to know these characters? If, yeah, all you're going to do is tell us about them. But I have a feeling that maybe a slightly common complaint, so I won't I won't spend too much time poking at it. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't until the second half of the book, at the very least, that we started really actually seeing actions telling us about the characters, uh, particularly when they're Jocelyn is Turner's sister who has run away and is the one who, spoiler alert, um, leaves the baby on Tessa's door for Turner to take care of until she can reclaim it. And when they start looking for her, when they start trying to track her down and they're staking out bus stops and going to convenience stores looking for Jocelyn, I feel like we're actually seeing them have to interact with the wider world and they're having to change the way that their lives are oriented and make plans and they're having to sort of lightly deceive some other people who can't know that the baby has been hidden at this house. So we see a little bit more about what they're made of, but, but up until that point, we just get someone who's generally a happy person and someone who's generally a grumpy person. And that's, that's all the character that we apparently need to know. Well, there, there are a lot of things yet to discuss about this book things that we were texting each other about as we began to read it. We've talked about haystacks a little bit, and we talked about sort of the way that independence is undermined a little in this book, even though it's also held up to be a good thing. Is there anything else you would like to talk about, Abby? Yeah, I will. I will say one thing that I thought of multiple times. Um, Now, partly just as a little bit of background, I am um, the mother to two children, one of whom is a four month baby. So my baby is slightly older than the three-month baby portrayed in this book. However, I will say, given my experience with parenting, that having a three-month-old baby sprung on you suddenly is not a fairly easy, kind of mostly enjoyable experience that has minor minor changes to your overall life. Um, I was both... I, I think there was at least they they referenced sometimes like, oh, you know, maybe she's, you know, a little teething or a little fussy. But like, I was also trying to think through this. I think at one point, Turner takes the baby solo in a buggy with him. And I was just like, 
is the baby asleep? Like, how are you handling this? If a baby starts, it's hard enough to take a small child on a car ride by yourself. If the baby starts screaming. And then my other big thing was three month old babies are not necessarily known for being good sleepers. Now, maybe again, I I will confess I'm in my mid thirties. So dealing with interrupted sleep is maybe a little bit harder than when you are, you know, a young 21 year old who can just, you know, get by on a few hours of sleep every night and not deal with it. And I will say every baby is different, but I felt like some of the more difficult phases of getting used to parenthood were, were, were glossed over just a little bit in its depiction of, of being a parent overnight. Yeah. I thought all of the difficult bits of parenting seemed to be taken care of by Tessa right away. And Tessa even admits that she doesn't particularly like childcare. Um, or cooking. She's very radical in this, but she's nevertheless willing to get married and have babies and do childcare and do the cooking, even though she doesn't like any of those things. Um, but I thought that that was a deliberate setup to show how hardworking she was so that Turner could respect her because he was the one who had no idea what to do with the baby. So the fact that she remembered to do stuff like change diapers and get formula and that sort of thing, um, I thought it was just a, the plot device to make them have a reason to respect each other and, and show how hardworking and earnest Tessa was when in reality, I, I can't imagine being in her position and not tearing my hair out and screaming. So. Oh, and actually that was the other quick thing. Now, maybe this is such the fact that it was not like their child, but it was kind of parenthood by proxy or something, but there was like, Turner had a little bit of anxiety about taking care of the baby, but that was generally kind of funneled into a general like male befuddlement about parenting, which I have my own issues with. <laughs> Despite not having a lot of siblings, not liking taking care of children, just seems to innately be like, oh, yeah, this is how you make cloth diapers and this is how you take care of this. And also I'm a little concerned. There was definitely did not seem to necessarily have like some totally safe conditions for the baby. At one point, she like forms a crib out of like a drawer and like some bedding, which again, maybe different standards, but that's not currently recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'll just let you know, that's just not their recommended form of safe sleep. So Erin, what about you? Was there anything else that stood out to you when you're reading you want to talk about? Yeah, one thing that we've we've kind of touched on earlier, I mentioned that the book mentioned her share of suitors. We haven't really talked about all the suitors she has throughout this book, which are a lot. Like, this is not a long book. I think we all read mm-hmm. it in, like, the course of three hours. And in it, she I can't remember the widow the widower's name that they try and pair up with. But then there's... Um, David. David, thank you. Um, then there's Jonah, uh, who's a fun-loving young guy who she seems kind of interested in. Then there's Aaron at the bowling alley, uh, who I actually liked that interaction because she didn't like him and she didn't even try and hide it, <laughs> which I thought was more maybe assertive than I would have expected. Um, and then the one that was the most puzzling was this scene where this English boy that she somehow knows through work, I think, and he hadn't been mentioned at all in the book previously, but he just like shows up at her door to ask her out and she shoes him away. And then later on she forgives him. And and the whole, the whole scene was just bizarre. 
just for a number of reasons. Like it didn't make sense as a plot point, but then it also like, that's, I mean, I guess if you're on Rumsprunga, you might date an English boy, but like there wouldn't be that kind of romantic interaction between Amish and, and Mennonites um, typically. And I don't know, the whole thing just was wildly weird. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I, I've often thought that bonnets and plain clothes make people plain. So the idea of someone English being enamored of someone Amish seems a little unusual because the cultural standards are so different for what, as for what constitutes beauty and, um, you know, pleasant behavior and attractiveness. And that's not to say that those barriers can't be transcended, but, you know, I, I think it's a big barrier, which perhaps is why this English person only comes late in the evening after. Has he had a drink? They, uh, no, they imply he's a know. good Christian boy. Like, yeah, because I was going to say, like, it just. It, it made no sense. That seemed unusual to me. Not not necessarily impossible, just unusual. Well, uh, <laughs> so although we do not have a scene quite as uh, striking as the scene from our last novel where the romantic couple demonstrates their compatibility by erotically <laughs> milking a camel together, <laughs> um, there are still some pretty interesting quotes and scenes from this book. Are there any that you feel like sharing? Erin, why don't you start? <laughs> there's there's some weird conversations about uh, Tessa's looks. And in particular, my favorite line uh, was in the very last page of the book. Um, so I'll just read it. Uh, page 155. When he pulled away, he gently traced her exquisite nose with his fingertips. Just thought it was great to describe <laughs> her nose as exquisite. I mean, why describe a nose at all, really? <laughs> mm-hmm. You never know. When you can't see someone's hair, maybe their nose comes into more focus. Yeah. Abby, how about you? Any quotes or scenes that stood out to you? Just two things. One, it was just in one point when in, in the line describing this, you know, adorable three-month-old baby who they've just met. Um, they talk about the long lashes that feathered her bulbous cheeks. <laughs> and I just want to question bulbous. Hmm. Now, granted, I am of the opinion that there is rarely, if ever, an okay time to use the word bulbous. <laughs> but pretty low on the list would be a baby's cheeks. <laughs> so that seemed a bit out of place. And then this was just the only, uh, this is the other highlighted line I had. And this was Tessa's eyelids suddenly snapped upward like a window shade as she took a step backward. There's just something about that that I was just like, what? I, I highlighted a, a pretty good variety of things. I think ultimately the bits that stuck out to me the most were when the word Amish was shoehorned into a sentence where it clearly didn't need to be the title, for instance, because with the main characters and pretty much all of the cast of characters being Amish, it seems like that's a given. 
So, of course, the baby is Amish. Of course, the widow that Turner pays to do his laundry is an Amish widow, not just a widow, not just a woman, an Amish widow. Um, So I highlighted that probably more times than I should have. And the one thing that made me laugh and also made me want to bang my head against a wall was the line about how Turner, quote, couldn't risk starting a family of his own for fear that his wife would bear daughters. What if he failed to raise them to stay true to their Amish faith and traditions as miserably as he had apparently failed to raise his sister? And this is a common thought for Turner and that he apparently just doesn't know how to handle women and he doesn't, he's not a good father figure and he's really worried that they'll leave the faith. Uh, this is not something that he worries about with his brothers. Apparently, men are inclined to follow the faith or he's a good male role model. Mostly, I just kind of wanted to slap him upside the head and say, <laughs> don't think too highly of yourself. It's not about you. <laughs> Which sort of happens towards the end when uh, Jocelyn, spoiler alert, comes back and says, I was figuring out things on my own and it had nothing to do with you. Thank you. All right, that that takes us about to our rating scale. I think our scale this time should be one to five bobbles. Bobble is apparently the Pennsylvania Dutch word for baby. I'm probably mispronouncing it. How would you rate this in terms of accuracy? One to five bobbles, Abby. I did feel like this was a little more accurate, but I also want to leave room to grow, so I don't want to rate too highly but i would say i'd give it a 3.5 maybe i felt like accuracy was at least in terms of amish portrayal was was better than better than most all right and in terms of of plot or overall enjoyment how many bottles do you give it Oh, I think I might give this one a little lower because it didn't have any like oddly, there were no no obvious villains or weird camel side plots. So I think I might give this a two. Um, I will also say I am just a little bit concerned about Tessa and Turner's long-term compatibility more so than the other couples that we've read. I just feel like between Turner's obsessive, self-hating self-flagellation actually about misdeeds he's done and tessa's unexplained 180 switch in terms of not like you know as as tilly you pointed out not liking cooking not liking child care and wanting her independence to within one fairly short book being okay with all of those i just feel like they may have some issues to work out down the road i would not be surprised Erin, how do you rate this on the scale of of plot and on the scale of accuracy? Yeah, I think my ratings would pretty much match Abby's. The plot was utterly ridiculous, like that you wouldn't, like a baby showing up on your doorstep literally seconds after you pray for a sign, um, not realizing that there's a baby in a basket. I I mean, just it was it was absurd, but it was entertaining and you know, there wasn't anything super egregious about the plot. So yeah, I'd probably do that like two star. I think on Goodreads, I gave it two out of five stars. Uh, And then in accuracy, yeah, I was actually, 
as I went back through and sort of looked at some of the details, I was actually sort of impressed. Like she had clearly done some sort of research, uh, though she missed a bit about like what typical Amish names would be, which seems like the easiest thing to get right. But she got lots of other details correct. Uh, so yeah, probably 3.5, maybe even closer to four stars in terms of accuracy. But yeah, if, this is out of a five five star scale. Mm-hmm. Cause, yeah, I think I would give it four out of five baubles for accuracy. I thought it managed to get the technical aspects pretty well right, uh, names accepted. And I thought it managed to get the atmosphere right in a way that some of the other things we've looked at have not. And that it was very community driven. It wasn't just, you know, one family and one suitor taking up all of the space in a book. There were lots of side characters. There was a lot of sense of community. And I think that in in previous things we've examined, the way that Amish faith has been treated is very evangelical, very personal relationship with God. And this did not fall into that camp. And I think that is more accurate. Um, And, and plot, yeah, it's gotta be, gotta be two out of five, probably. It's all about miscommunication and and meddlesome mothers and sisters. And, you know, it, yeah, there's only so much that can hold my attention there. So I believe that brings us to the end of our episode on Minding the Amish Baby. Uh, If you have questions, comments, or want to share your own playing experiences, please email us at playingwrongpod at gmail.com or find us on social media. We'd love to hear from you.